0: Feast on this one.
1: Conceptuality is something other than itself.
2: There's been a change in the image of thought. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. The internal structure of becoming. As soon as an utterance slips from the mouth, it's divorced from the subject.
1: When you think of the terminology of decentering that was associated with Derrida, and this is very clearly an essay where he says, Decentering that sort of decentering move has been the move. That's what I'm responding to. I am not yeah. the guy who's decentering the subject or decentering culture or anything that I am saying, given that all of these folks are decentering, they face a problem. And it's a problem that they don't recognize, right? That they have not come to grips with. You know, and and that's to me what's I, I think you're quite right. It's like contextualizing this in sixty six at a moment where you know, the U.S. Academy is just hearing for the first time this idea of differences without positive terms and this sort of, and he's like, you know, this is what's been going on in the French Academy for a decade. Um, and I'm responding, like he, he is, I mean, he's, I think in starting off from the point of what's cutting edge in right. France in the mid 60s with a kind of a critique in quotation marks, you know, the sort of a, a critique of that, but it gets heard and certainly received right. Like the reception was, Derrida's the guy who says the subject is decentered and there is no mm. truth and it's all play. And it's like that, that's exactly none what of those he's things are true. Yeah, and he doesn't
0: say any of those not, things.
1: Right, right. Well, you, but it's also yeah, the yeah. case. I mean, I would also say like having taught this multiple times, like I, I kind of slogged through the stuff on structure. Like I didn't. I mean, it was hard for me. It was very. It's very dense. It moves very fast. The substitution of centers for cent. You know, mm-hmm. centers for center. Like all of that stuff was very hard. Honestly, it presupposes having read Grammatology. You mm-hmm. know, because it's it's clear that he's just cribbing his argument from Grammatology in really short form. And and the thing that I read in the bio is like he literally wrote this essay on the flight. Like. Over to because he was like a last minute add on to the conference. Like mm-hmm. I said, he wasn't a big name guy in '66. He was just a, mm-hmm. a rising star, and I th- and like someone bowed out at the last minute, and they added him in. and And on the flight over, he wrote this, and he just kind of that first four pages, he just kind of cribs or summarizes really fast his grammatology argument, and then really fast does you know Levi Strauss again really fast you know he doesn't yeah. it's not the usual careful you know parsing out that Derrida does this is like the this as an essay this is probably not one of his best essays even though it's yeah i think by far the most read essay it's you know? forceful well, for only it's like short 15 pages to,
0: yeah it's short you know i mean like i don't see yeah. any gaps in the in the movement in the, in the first four pages i don't i don't see you know was i was actually so because tight I, yeah, it's so tight. Every single move just follows carefully from from the right. previous one, and yeah, it doesn't have the sort of, you know, like if if he if he were giving this the attention that he would one of his longer essays, then you're right. Like a lot of these moves, then would probably have a chapter or two, sort of. That's like... That's right.
1: They'd unpack, you know, them follow, yeah,
0: them. unpack the thing and follow it through like six or seven yeah. places, and then come back around. But at least for my mind, this makes it it's, it's easier to follow because. Uh, you know, I, I, can, I can... It's like, like, it's like,
1: syllogistic. It's yeah, like it's know, syllogistic. Yeah, it's far more
0: syllogistic, yeah. One and that's just one a little a, bit easier B. for me to follow, yeah.
1: I mean, and I, and I do think he lays out, again, I started suspecting this in the last few readings, but in this case, it, it became clear, where, like, you really do get a sense of his, his values, like, what he values, like, what deconstruction's value is, like, on page 282, where... Um, You know, and these are the kinds of claims that, by the way, starting with this claim, because this is the kind of claim that people don't hear about uh, um, from Derrida. And he's talking about, you know, cultural anthropology, like any science comes about within the element of discourse. It is primarily a European science, including traditional concepts, however much it wants to struggle against them. Consequently, and this is the part, like whether he wants to or not, and this does not depend on a decision on his part, the ethnologist accepts into his discourse the premises of ethnocentrism at the very moment when he denounces them. And this, this is the line where it's so explicit. This necessity is irreducible. It is not a historical contingency, right? It's not like it just happened because of Levi Strauss's fuck up or even because this historical moment. Like, it's like this is an absolute, right? Yeah. Ne- necessity. I mean, that, that's a really strong claim. And it's also for me, and he does this in grammatology in ways that are much clearer. When he's talking about ethnocentrism, he's talking about metaphysics. Like, we usually don't think of those things as the same thing. We think of metaphysics as this weird sort of philosophical airy stuff, and ethnocentrism as this, you know, like bias based on where we come from. It's like no, metaphysics is ethnocentrism. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not. It's not like a different terrain of questions. So, so the critique of metaphysics is not in this case, it's not simply a philosophical, lofty, conceptual thing. It is a cultural bias, right? Like that that's the t- the larger target here for Derrida is what does one do when one recognizes, you know, ethnocentrism to be a condition of all discourse that we produce?
0: Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, I think it's worth, I mean, especially your claim that this is not a contingency. This is a necessity. I mean, trying to, to walk through why that, Is the case because you know, for him, like the the historical event that is not a contingency that had to have happened and was, I think, you know, I I think he puts it differently in other places where it's like, is always kind of playing out to one degree or another, but just sort of really comes to a fore at a particular historical moment is the rise of ethnology itself. And to say that, like, look, the rise of ethnology itself requires the discourse, requires the presumption of ethnocentrism, precisely because at a particular historical, Historical moment, the ethnocentrism of European thought can no longer um, um, be so blind to its own uh, uh, its own relative place that it is not simply Sorry. the discourse. And then be able to say, all right, well then we need something called ethnology to be able to account for this plural- plurality. Right. but that then to, to to move from that position of ethnocentrism which would then have to include all of the metaphysical um, uh, language right. uh, all of the metaphysical apparatus that allows this ethnocentric um, uh, worldview to permeate and evolve and, and, and operate um, right. for ethno for ethnology to emerge out of that it has to emerge out of that discourse, out of those assumptions, out of those presumptions. So even though it's turned on itself, like holy shit, we need to start counting for difference. It can only do so by mobilizing the the language, the the presuppositions that it is at the same time critiquing, and right. you know sometimes borrowing from you know this quadrant to critique something in another quadrant, or even one that gets really close to each other, like using language to critique language. Um, yeah. But either way, that, I mean, I think that's why it's necessary. It's not, you know, just like some historical contingency that it just so happens that, that the, the West did this. Now, like you could imagine it could take, you know, millions of years for this to happen or, you know, it could have right, happened right. all within, you know, like Cicero talks about ethnocentrism and, and so do a lot of the sophists. But it just doesn't kind of click in the same way that has the, the same kind of ripple effects. Um, but, well, and it's—I think it's
1: also precisely because we don't think of metaphysics as part of ethno, you yeah, know, that right. that that metaphysics, even still, for those of us who understand, we still see it as these kind of transcendent series of philosophical values, and it's like, no, those transcendent philosophical values are ethnocentric, like that's that's that is the constitutive element of of the ethno, it is you know, so so I think that that's that's part of it. Like that's a, that's a, I, to me, at least a really just important lesson that the critique of metaphysics is, because there's a way in which I, I, I just get the sense, like my colleagues in an English department will be like, oh yeah, critique of ethnocentrism. I'm down with that critique of metaphysics. Like that's some airy lofty abstraction thing that like theory wonks do. And it's like, no, they're the same thing. Like mm-hmm. literally, literally oh. the same.
2: This yeah. kind of critique of ethnocentrism, I'm not sure everybody would love, because it basically says that you're right. culpable in it, regardless of your intentions or your scholarship or your work. Like right. you have it to does. be, like ruthless or relentlessly attentive to your own culpability in these dynamics. Right. Well, so there's
0: or, no, or or not or, doesn't matter. Or not. Way.
1: Right. Well, it doesn't matter. Like.
2: But you know. but the,
0: any presumed... in terms of one's culpability, for sure.
2: No, no, but any any presumed ethicality or objectivity in this case from the perspective of the ethnologist is just, you know, fraught with all of yeah. these complications. Which well, I that, think is, is that yeah.
1: that's where it's I mean, at some level it's like faced with the difficulty of ethnocentrism of whatever I produce. Mm-hmm. The discourse, by and large, tries to figure out how you can be less ethnocentric, right? Right, or a little bit less, or a little bit less, you know, voraciously ethnocentric, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the telos, and this is an early version of you know post I mean, it's post-colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. And and the claim here is you can't be less. Yeah. Like yeah. There's no be being less. You can, you can be can differently. Be but you can't be right. less, right? Like, right. and so that to me, like that's. In in some ways, I feel like that's a claim that still hasn't gotten yeah. adequately heard, no. right? Yeah. Like it's because I think there's this still sense, this sense of like, well, if you're definitely ethnocentric, you're tr- you're being a little more ethically of a of a good mm-hmm. guy, mm-hmm. you know, if you're like aware of. And that's where that's where I said, you know, what I the pr- the premise uh, that I, I mentioned a moment ago, where we get Derrida's values, where he says right after the passage I was just reading. You know, the, this necessity is irreducible. It is not a historical contingency. We ought to consider all its implications very carefully. And I, mean, I think that's what he's pointing to. Like that has huge implications. If if you yeah. really are constitutively, really strongly, like it, it's a vicious yeah. circle. Um, but if no one can escape this necessity, and if no one is therefore responsible for giving into it, however little he may do so. This does not mean that all ways of giving into it are of equal pertinence. And this is where, to me, here's your statement of what does Derrida value that we actually talked about last time in terms of the mm-hmm. critique stuff. The quality and fecundity of a discourse are perhaps, he's got to put in perhaps there, right, are perhaps <laughs> measured by the critical rigor with which this relation to the history of metaphysics and to an inherited concepts is thought. Yeah. Here it is a question both of a critical relation to the language of the social sciences and a critical responsibility of the discourse itself. It is a question explicitly and systematically. It is a question of explicitly and systematically posing the problem of the status of a discourse which borrows from a heritage the resources necessary for the deconstruction of the heritage itself. A problem of economy and strategy. Like, I mean, he says to me that's a pretty straightforward way of saying if you don't explicitly address the problem you are doing a different kind, right? Like, you are not rigorous. Which is to say, if you're not actively, in our terminology, we'd say, if you're not consciously aware, yeah, right? Now, he's not going to say conscious awareness, because for him, I mean, for one instance. of the things that's great here is it's repetition. Like, thinking is repetition, right? Like, um, so it's not a question of simple conscious awareness, but that that's, the rigor is, it is a question of explicitly and systematically Posing the problem of the status of a discourse, which borrows from a heritage the resources necessary for the deconstruction. Like, you have to explicitly write about that problem,
0: Mm -hmm. you know. Which is another way of just saying, anytime somebody asks you, why does Derrida write the way that he does? You just point them to this passage. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, with that's all that's, the hesitancy with all of the qualifications, yeah. with all of the quotation marks and the parentheticals and the, the, the faux signatures. I mean, it is, he's being rigorous and explicit, which also means he has to be incredibly tentative and say, like, look, this, do not presume what I'm saying goes one way. I, and I have to be able right. to show you it goes at least in two ways at the same time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, he's he's being rigorous Endless about scene.
2: explaining what rigor looks like, which is
0: kind of a difficult thing. <laughs> but look, I mean, on the next on the next
1: page. So, for instance, so what we skip there is a page where he uses the idea of the sign and Levi Strauss's attempt to deploy the sign to critique metaphysics, and he shows. But the sign is always a sign of, so it's already always implicated whatever in metaphysics, and then on two eighty four. Um, this example, too cursally examined, is only one among others, but nevertheless, it already shows that language bears within its necessity of, bears within itself the necessity of its own critique. Now, this critique may be undertaken along two paths or in two manners. I mean, this is where, for me, mm-hmm. style, like two styles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Once the limit of nature-culture-opposition makes itself felt, one might want to question systematically and rigorously the history of these concepts. This is a first action. This is deconstruction, is what he's describing, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is a first action. Such a systematic and historic questioning would be neither philological nor a philosophical action in the classic sense of the words. To concern oneself with the founding concepts of the history of philosophy, to deconstitute them, is not to undertake the work of the philologist, despite appearances it is probably the most daring way of making the beginning of a step outside of philosophy, which is difficult, more difficult to make than everybody thinks. The other choice, which I believe corresponds to Levi-Strauss's, is in order to avoid the possibly sterilizing effects of the first one. I'm not sure about that word sterilizing there. Like what the, the sterilizing effects of this first one consists in conserving the old concepts but treating them as if they're methodological, right? Like, and, and that, I mean, honestly, I feel like that second move is what everyone does. Yep. Like everyone – I mean in our field, in the field of rhetorical studies, it's like I recognize that these concepts that I'm bringing to bear are not adequate and they yeah. have a tainted origin. So I'm just going to say they're heuri- – like for instance, the, the emphasis on heuristics rather than method. Like there's yeah. that, mm-hmm. there was that whole conversation. It's like let's not make it a General. method. Let's call it a heuristic. And it's just a way of kind of sort of softening yeah. in a sense – the 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 concepts that you're using, it's like these aren't these absolute and and that's where I feel like. Deirdre, this critique today, this critique in '66, like, still resonates today because mm-hmm. Derrida's going to show Gotta you. Step
0: out for just one second, but I'm, I'm still listening. Sorry, <laughs>
1: that's all right. It, like Derrida's going to show you. You can't just declare, or or it doesn't do much to just declare that. Oh, oh my concepts are softer concepts, right? It yeah. has to, it has to be a direct questioning. You know? Well.
2: And I think today you see a similar um, issue, but almost in reverse, like with people like Barad, where they almost refuse um, their metaphysical lineage and create new concepts that solve all right. of the problems of our metaphysical presuppositions. For example, like intra-action, right? where it's, it's designed to remedy all of the potential humanist suppositions about inter- Right. It's right. intra because intra. Each is a, right, it's affecting each other and each person, each relata is constitutive of one another. Right. So it's like it's almost like um, instead of just provisionally using um, these inherited concepts, some scholars just reach all the way to the moon. They're like, we're going right. with something brand new that's never right. been seen before. Yeah. Right. Well, the, there's this. a
1: sentence there that's perfect for that where he says, um, the step outside of philosophy is much more difficult to conceive than is generally imagined by those who think they made it long ago with cavalier ease, and who, in general, are swallowed up in metaphysics in the entire body of discourse which they claim to have disengaged from it. Right. Um, or there's another quote where he says, "Turning the page on philosophy usually amounts to philosophizing badly." Right, mm-hmm. and that's that's the that's the idea of the new concepts thing. It's like right. exactly. you know, you recognize that nature culture nature and culture aren't particularly good concepts, that they are fallible concepts. So what do you do in Barak's case? You call it nature culture. Nature culture. right? And it's like, well, I mean, and you think, ah, I've gotten rid of, you know, Uh, I've gotten rid of that series of problems. But I I will also say, like, that's a tactic. So, for instance, for me, like, in in the style thing, like, I I don't want to distinguish between thinking and writing, but I'm going to, so I'm going to do thinking writing, right? It's the same kind of tactical move. The difference would be, I think, I understand that to be a tactical move that does not accomplish the end run around the problem that I want it to, that I have to revisit that as a tactic yeah. uh, and problematize that tactic. Whereas I do think that she thinks that, well, if you jam the words together, we're <laughs> you know, solving the problem. Then we're, their... then we're no longer in the realm of metaphysics because we have There's like, no opposition anymore.
2: Yeah. Right, and, yeah. and that's Which just is, I mean, the case. It's, it's a, obviously a little reductive on Barad's part, and that's part of my critique in the dissertation, but what's yeah. almost more interesting is just the reception of that, broadly speaking, in the I field know. and elsewhere, where everyone's just like, hell yeah, ahead, the nature culture, culture man. That, Intra-action. That's... Right, right. Like, I can't believe somebody has finally solved all of these pesky... You know, oppositions and binaries, like the way yeah. Barad has done. So it's like yeah. clearly people are looking for a resolution yes. to these
1: problems. Right, and, but that's the problem. Yeah, and that's much that's what Derrida. Right. Yeah, that's Deirdre, that's Derrida's point is that like yeah, everyone wants a way out. Everyone wants to turn the page. Everyone wants to go to the next yeah. new concepts. And that's the Heidegger problem too. Yeah. Right. Like the, the Denk. I mean, you know, listening now to the Denkin dialogues as we uh, or whatever. <laughs> I remember what we called it the Heidegger files. <laughs> um, but listen to that now. That's the Heidegger problem, too, is that like, look, here's the real dispositional problem for this stuff is you have to stop thinking about solving the problem and you have to start thinking about inhabiting it differently. It's just yeah. a different dispositional a orientation shift. into these. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the only thing. And and so what you lose in that is a sense of a kind of moral priority where it's like I'm doing the right things, like you're not doing the right thing. You can't do the right thing. You can try to do something meticulously different. Um, but it's yeah. a, just a different – it's a different way of doing the same thing. That's the only game. Mm-hmm.
0: So I've got yeah. two responses to these. I have a response to each one of these two ways. I'll start with the second one first. Just – I mean, the, the the sort of the move from um, uh, the method to the heuristic. And that that move, the, the one that was kind of wants to just soften method and be like, well, it mostly works, or it's an approximation, right. but we know that there are exceptions that kind of slip through the cracks. But within the domain that I'm talking about, you know, it, it works well enough. I can cap, you know, like, it's like Newtonian physics. I can build a great car. I know it's not sort of adequate to the universe because... You know I start speeding it up or slowing it down or making it hotter or colder it all sort of goes away but it does a good job of explaining you know how to make a car to me and that that is an odd version of heuristic to me insofar as it, it is just like a softened method where I I think of heuristic far more like just inventively first it's like no it's a if it's a tool it's not it's not a um, it's not a disclosure of the well perhaps in the heideggerian sense it is but it's not just a, a vision of, of the world or it's not a window into a world it's an intervention into the world that remakes in, in some kind of way that heuristics are are inventive and from that perspective i don't know what other option there is you know and i actually turn to like uh Deleuze and what is philosophy I'm like what else are you going to do other than make concepts like philosophy is right. the production of concepts and nothing else and that doesn't mean that those concepts are just sort of you know hu- at, at their hubristic level they're um they're 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 um um totalizing views of the world and at their more modest level they're sort of like softened views of the world like no concepts are empiric are, are empirical they are little like empirical machines that go out into the world and they remake the world the like themselves and the world, so that that's the response to the second one, the one that you know, Derrida is, yeah, is claiming. Like here's what Levi Strauss does, and here's why it's problematic that Levi does it this way. Levi Strauss does it this way, and of course, you know, the better option is option one, which is to make that courageous very difficult, requires rigor and explicit attention of of, of a way out of philosophy, and like I, you know, it it it. it at, at the end of um, the, the, the top paragraph, the one that starts at the bottom of 281 and then spills over onto 282, and it's like... Like this is you know this you know Nietzsche Freud and Heidegger all kind of imagine themselves as the last metaphysician but they're all trapped in this circle and they can all get trapped in the circle differently because I mean isn't it interesting how they all kind of critique each other for being the last metaphysician and then I just like wanted to write in the margins in there like so we should go without saying that I am doing this exact same thing to them that I'm not claiming to be the last metaphysician I'm just showing a different way of of inhabiting this that that circle. And reading good chunks of this, I think that's what Derrida is doing. But then I read this first path that he offers. I'm like, no, he wants to imagine himself as the last metaphysician, or at least the one who can give birth to the overman, who's sort of like pointing the way out of metaphysics. And and this is, by the way, this is Richard Rorty's... um, um, critique of Derrida in um, his book um, Contingency, Solidarity, and uh, Ironies like Derrida's doing the same thing to um, Freud, Nietzsche, and Heidegger that he claims they're doing to each other. And at a certain point, you just have to be comfortable operating within metaphysics, but with it, but you know, still kind of then being like recognizing that there are different ways of making metaphysics do it thing, do its thing.
1: Uh, Although, I mean, a lot hinges, and for me, in terms of my reading of this essay, a lot hinges on that. There's that one sentence where you say, like, I mean, it's true. So each of these folks critiques the previous folk for, for previous person for... Performative contradiction, right? They say they're moving outside of metaphysics, but what they do keeps them trapped in metaphysics, right? It's, one could do this, you know, Heidegger regarding Nietzsche with, which, with as much lucidity and rigor. Let's hold on to that part, too. Mm-hmm. Like, as much lucidity and rigor as bad faith and misconstruction as the last metaphysician, the last Platonist. One could do the same for Heidegger himself, for Freud, or for a number of others. And this next sentence is, to me, the key sentence. And today, no exercise is more widespread. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so what is he saying there? Is he simply describing a phenomena of like, you know, this is what we do. Or I tend to read it as this kind of eye rolling like, yeah, and this is the, this is just the, yeah, this is the game. This. Everyone's doing this thing. Now, right. that second reading is interesting if, let's keep in mind, he then proceeds for the next 10 pages to do exactly that to Levi yeah. Strauss. Right, I mean, he does. He just says he shows performative contradiction in Levi-Strauss. So to me, the question is, how do you read that? How do you read the fact that he began the essay by setting it up and saying, here are the conditions for a performative contradiction. It's the easiest game in town. Everyone can do it, right? And here, I'm going to do it with structuralism and the the biggest name guy – in structuralism,
0: like, right,
1: exactly, like, I, I tend to read that as just sort of a, like, you know, see, one can do this, right, it's not, it's not rocket science, and it's not, that's why, that's where, for me, I tend to say, that's why it's actually not a critique of Levi Strauss, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it is, because what he's done is he's prefaced the whole critique of Levi Strauss by saying, critique, as in performative contradiction, is the easiest game in town. It's it's the necessary condition of all discourse trying to push on the to- on its totalizing logic, and then here I'm going to go I'm going to go do this. But I began that by saying nothing. No exercise is more widespread. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. to me, it's a kind. Con- that's where I'm like, it's an essay that undermines itself, yeah. right? It's a it's an essay that kind of erases the value of. The critique, the negative intervention, or or even the desire to claim that there are two paths, yeah. right? right. It, yeah. It's like, no, there aren't. T- I mean, that's, that's where that end move, right? The end move of there are two paths you can go by, the two interpretations of interpretation, but it's like, no, there aren't. No. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, I mean, this time reading the the sections on Levi Strauss, it just felt less like a, a critique to me. In that, like, yeah. you know, in much like yeah. is the way that the first reading of, of of signature event context feels like a critique of, of Austin, and then right. you go back to it, and you're there's like, oh, there's not so much uh, there's not so much of a critique here. And in many ways, this feels like look, he's he's showing he's he's setting this up, and he's using Levi Strauss as an example, but not as an example of someone who like does it in spite of its hubris, but as someone who, like, recognized a certain um, uh, uh, function of the nature culture, like, explicitly relies on it, recognizes a limitation of it, and then struggles to kind of try to to deal with it, and, and in many ways, like, is just dramatizing yeah. or animating that, um, the, you know, the self-critique of, of metaphysics by the running through of metaphysics, and Levick-Strauss is pretty rigorous and careful and... You know, with, and and Derrida is just sort of like showing how he's being rigorous and careful. And that's why it does exactly what it does. In, in fact, in, in many ways, in virtue of the rigor and care that Levi Strauss gives it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he likes Levi Strauss. Like, I agree with you. But, but there are those... Like, for instance, and this is exactly the problem of the heuristic methods question, is the brick engineer. Yeah. So, Levi Everyone Strauss does... They all love the brick allure, right? Like, and but I mean, and Derrida's critique is the brick allure is a vacuous concept because for it to work, it has to maintain this idealized notion of an engineer, right? Who's not working. I mean, the bricklayer is working with the tattered remains and just grabbing from yeah. here and there. You know, we the dismantling the what is what is the Audre Lord like dismantling the the uh, master's house with the master's tools? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To, kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so that 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 sort of just hodgepodge way that's the heuristic sense right like that heuristic sense of this isn't a rigorous process that you got to go steps one through five it's like it depends on the situation to to me in terms of the heuristics what that always does is it just installs at the level of the subject and choice the Mm -hmm. metaphysics it just shifts it away from the tools and into the subject so now I've got to now I've got to choose which things I'm going to use. And it's the same kind of move. And so I think that is a critical – like I think – and I guess I, maybe I've just been trained enough by Derrida to the extent that I share that. I'm just like, yeah, mm-hmm. that whole brick allure notion only has value as it's not an engineer. It's not a scientist. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. a methodologist. But yeah. if those science engineers and methodologists are just variations of brick allure, the very concept of brick allure, as mm-hmm. as some sort of method – becomes mm-hmm. like it just loses its value and so like and that's that sense yes. of where and, and I get this later on it's like hey you know Levi Strauss you can call your yeah. mythic your, your discourse on myths you can call it a myth and you can say it has no heightened epistemic value and he does that like Levi Strauss does that it's like look my analysis of myths is not in any transcendent relation it's just another myth but it's like Sure doesn't sound like it. All of the aspects you can't just call your thing not a, you know, not knowledge and call it a myth. And if you don't pose the question, I mean, that's what he says. He never poses the questions of a, the relationship between the myth theme and the philosophy, which yep. is how do the how does an epistemic knowledge based sentence work with a mythical sentence? And unless well, this is you pose where the Amazon question,
0: recommendation would pop up if if Derrida was writing contemporary like in our contemporary moment. Uh, if you like uh, structure, sign and play and my take on, on Levi Strauss's the myth and the philosophy read white mythology.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it, it really is. And, yeah. and of course there's no solution. I mean, that's the other part. There's no solution to that problem, right? It's yeah. not like, okay, once I've worked through the myth, you know, knowledge relationship, then I can go ahead and go back and do my anthropology because I mean, I think that at some level, what, what would happen were Levi-Strauss to have done that is that anthropology would go away.
0: But that's right? precisely like, it would, yeah, the, the well, demonstration like of the non-escapability of metaphysics is to like even even the desire, the move to try to claim the non privileged place is privileging non privilege yeah, over right. privilege. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. It's and sort right, of like, a, like you Yeah.
2: It's like a false modesty a little bit. It's sort of like the bricolure yeah. is a pretentious concept yeah. because like oh, you yes. were saying, John, it installs the engineer at the level of yeah. the subject position where I've right. engineered the bricolure to be right. this yeah. like sort of collage right. artist um, right. where you're still doing the same kind of work. You know, right. so That's where W. Strauss
0: is doing that as sincerely as he possibly can. Like he's doing everything he can to create this non-privileged place. It's like, fuck. Yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you get yeah. it? I
1: get it. I mean, that's that's another one of those where like I get that impulse which is I want to undermine the kind of transcendent knowledge claims that my discourse is making. Like, I feel that way all the time, yeah. right? I want to say, and, you know, I do it through jokes and I do it through other, like, you know, this is just one dumbass perspective. Like, that's my mechanism for doing that. It's trying to undermine the what you perceive to be the status, the kind of transcendent status of any kind of knowledge or truth claim. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, I think Derrida's point is it, it has to get built into the thing. Like, you can't just do a scientific study and say hey this isn't science this is just a myth on myths that doesn't change anything the sheer declaration of it ignores the structural ways in which for instance in his case like the whole thing is set up such that future knowledge could invalidate or alter or uh, build upon levi-strauss's so if if your whole discourse still works like science mm-hmm. calling it a myth just makes you feel better like, that's the only thing that you're accomplishing there. Or even further,
0: the Declaration doesn't hide that. The Declaration instantiates that in a very particular way.
1: <laughs> well, um, that's even, yeah, that's even stronger. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Um but this is this is the question that ha, that arose for me reading this and thinking a whole lot. I mean, because basically we're talking about a, a very specific struggle of trying to imagine, trying to do away with the notion of transcendent, um, uh, like a metaphysical transcendence that creates right. a place of privilege to fix knowledge the, the as a play top of the down game, operation. Right? Yeah, okay. and you know this goes back to the first few pages about like, in other words, like trying to imagine structure without a center, right? What yeah. would it be if we didn't have this sort of non, this quasi non structural um, uh, element that controls the rest of the structure that turns play into a game? In other words, right. with it's right. sort of like it's rules, and then you know you can follow any number of thinkers to, to say that like, you know, the thing about a game is that the um, the rules have to maintain outside of the play of the game and therefore they're not structured by the game themselves they have to just be asserted they have to be just um uh, assumed and that is the yeah. mythological um assertion or the metaphorical assertion of uh, the premise of then setting up the rest of the structures like well shit, i don't want to just assert something and then build on top of it i want the firm foundation i want or i want to be able to follow the play of the structure and right. a whole lot of this to me is just a matter of, like, here's um, an interesting alliance that I don't think that we particularly recognize as an alliance that we just think of as being self identical, is the relationship between hierarchy and verticality that yeah. hierarchies are always vertical that which I mean obviously hierarchy right but that <laughs> that in order to declare a hierarchy or um. um or order to declare a center, uh, a center, you have to imagine a vertical um, uh, dimension to ontology. That part of it is sort of stepping outside or off off of the ontological grid in order to govern that which is below. And th- so the central question for me, and it's one that I turn to Nietzsche and Deleuze to think, is not just how do you imagine a flattened plane of an, of ontology, but how do you imagine a horizontal, a flat Sense hierarchy. of hierarchy, and you know, this is where the language of Nietzsche's appropriation makes a whole lot of sense to me, because you know, because it, it, it allows for the transcendent, universalizing function of the hierarchical claim to operate on a flat grid because even as it claims transcendence even as it claims universality it can only sort of like disseminate out on a flat plane Stancy and grab itself, this yeah. and grab that remake this remake that but it has to actually do the work of doing have of, of its of its spread and then in doing right. the work of its spread it's remaking itself at the same yeah. time
1: so so it's like i mean to use the terminology i think we did this last time or two times ago but like I mean, the simplest bumper sticker version of that is hypotaxis is always paratactically mm-hmm. installed. And so, mm-hmm. but that's the interesting question. So what what's the difference between parataxis paratactically installed and mm-hmm. parataxis hypotactically installed? You know what I mean? Like, what what's the, given that they're both paratactic, they are just mm-hmm. both sort of serial performative instantiations, what allows for some things to congeal paratactically in a way that makes them function like their hypotaxis.
0: Well, I would say rendering it that way really makes those distinctions a matter of intensity and you can never be able, you can never point yeah. to one being the other because no. uh, in some important ways you could say all parataxis has uh, um, hypotactic tendencies some absolutely you know paratactically deployed things like they have greater or lesser affinities and it's easier for one staying <laughs> claim to dominate another claim
1: you're right, right? We're, we're right back at deterritorialization and re-territorialization yeah, like, exactly that's right where we are yeah and there's not one without there's not one without the other you don't get to a pure parataxis
0: yeah by the way, I've, been, I've been saving this for like the last three episodes but I think it's finally ripe <laughs> for me to bring it back Cash in, in. Is that because I'm rereading the Danken Dialogue, Heidegger file ones, and you know, we're in the first several episodes where we're really, well, I think the whole season, we're really trying to grapple in both positive and negative ways with Heidegger's sense of essence. And um, um, a few weeks ago, I was rereading Deleuze's book on Nietzsche and Deleuze's um, uh, articulation of Nietzsche's sense of essence and you know this is all about like there is like um uh, force can only act on force yes. and that and and so there's only ever active force that provokes the reactivity of whatever force it is appropriating and you can imagine right. that as a hierarchy you know on on the uh, on a flat uh terrain it's like but this is what i love about nietzsche's sense of essence is that an essence isn't something Innate isn't something self-identical. It's certainly not something self-identical. Is that we can say that the essence of an object is only um, uh, is only realized the forces that have appropriated it. Well, because any force Sorry. can appropriate Go ahead. any object, right? But that doesn't – but not any But the object is already –
1: but the object is already constituted by force, so it's already – The object is already
0: constituted by force, right? So there's no object qua – there's no ding on zik that has not already been appropriated. But Mm -hmm. some forces have a greater affinity in their appropriation of the thing. And some things the object resists more. Right. Because of it, and, and again, whenever like it's it's hard to hear like the object. But when we think of whenever you that's say right. the object, just substitute the object for an entire history or an entire genealogy. Constellation of force of forces having a appro- force of mm-hmm. yeah, like it's an entire genealogy of or a history of of forces having appropriated each other. Right, that in some ways right. create a little bit of a knot or a little bit of like right. a, well, that's a, what a cal- calcification. And that's a- that's what I've always said. That's what an
1: o- that's what an object is. An object yeah. is just the historical con- like yeah. con-
0: congealing of force yeah. relations. Yeah. And but you know like given any so let's take my body as an object and we'll just say that it is a genealogy of of forces acting upon forces that you could trace for the existence of what we would recognize what we call my body and then another level we could call it you know trace it as, as the the recognizable history of something called the human and then another level the recognizable history of what we call life whatever, right? But. Given the particular sort of, like, genealogy and composition and constellation of forces that are operating on each other, some forces are more likely to take hold of my body and reshape it, and other ones my body has more of an allergic reaction to and fights off. And that, at least following uh, Deleuze there, that's, that's essence. Which also, like, right. which is an interesting sense of essence in that it's like, what what is... Where are the great, where do the greatest affinities lie and where there's that kind of like, where it, that, 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 convergence is, is most likely that's, that's what you would call an essence, but then necessarily that essence has to change as it undergoes its genealogical right. series. Right. Es-
2: essence is mutable.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. right,
2: right. There's no content to an essence, only a form or a trajectory or a series of affiliations and forces which ties back into Derrida's argument here when he's, when he's talking about the universal, right? It's like we're, we're captured universally by contingent circumstances. I think that's kind of what he means at one point. But for Levi Strauss, right, when he's talking about our being captured by metaphysics, like this is an absolute necessity. Um, but for Strauss, for Levi Strauss, there's still a content to the universal, right? Which is still within the dynamics of like, Nature or human nature or biological nature, even in his attempt to decenter that opposition between nature and culture, there's still a fundamental privileging of the natural, right in 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 his uh, in his estimation, right. So there's a content uh, to the essence of human nature, whereas for Derrida, this would only be like a series of contingent circumstances that have you know piled upon each other,
0: right. Um, and that, but that's that's one of the things. That, that first off, thank you for me. bringing us back to Derrida. because I was, I was, I, I like shot us to the moon. You're like, no, I can no, back. no, I, <laughs> no. You were all into
1: Duluth, there <laughs> right? I know. But but that's one of the things where it, it kind of comes back to stuff that we were talking about last time. But like, that's where to me, like, if what we mean by contingency. Right. Is just relation, you know, sort of relationality and that relationality can accrete over time. So, for instance, what you were saying there, it's like my body has certain, you know, uh, um, it's it's available to certain kind of forces and it's less available uh, to other kinds of forces, recognizing full well that given one particular interaction, it might become more available to those things Mm -hmm. that it wasn't available to before so um i mean i guess the question then of really thinking about contingency in that sense is just like only theoretically is everything contingent like actually in practice things are very locally and narrowly Mm -hmm. contingent Mm -hmm. to the point where you're like why do we even fucking call it contingent right like it's Mm -hmm. in that sense it's it's not it's like available – it's it's capable of being affected in a relatively narrow series of potential circumstances, right? right? Like, And so that – and it's like if you just rethink what we mean by contingency, then the whole contingency universality problem goes away, right? Yeah. It's no longer it, – that's no longer the question of contingency. The question of contingency is relative specificity of interactions, yeah. Yeah. right? It's like – here, these things are capable of some kinds of things. Of course, you never know that until you experiment with them. It's not like you can diagnose it and just say, ah, I've become aware of this, because thinking itself is part of part of those, you know, relations. But it's like, mm-hmm. so that's a sense in which you can still claim it's not contingent. Although it is contingent, I mean, it's it's broadly contingent in the sense that what what he's saying, he says this is not a historical, this is a historical necessity, necessity, right? Mm. But but that's not a universality, right? Like that doesn't have to be a question of universality. That you, you you're just saying certain types of contingencies are simply more available. Than others, so like Levi Strauss isn't the one who fucked up with a performative contradiction, but but what I'm not saying is that everyone always for all time will be stuck in metaphysics because again, like that's this is my anthropocentrism. I get like there are just different ways of thinking. Like yeah. and and yeah. the one that works for us at this juncture, yeah, you're trapped, and we got to own the being trapped. And again, I see myself now heading back to my Nietzsche argument of overcoming the human and mm-hmm. yada yada. Yeah,
0: but I mean, I mean like, like, like yeah. so the necessity there is. You're right; it's not universal. It's not transcendent. It it's is not. in some ways. It is contingently necessary insofar as like, right. hey, one ethnocentric metaphysics is sort of like. Uh, um, uh, uh, operates by through its attempt to totalize binaries and right. the totalization of those binaries is inescapable from like in the terrain that it inaugurates the escape the escape of those binaries is impossible but as it plays out, you know, at some contingent point or another, but necessarily at a point, you know, it starts right. to recognize its own uh, its own complicity, its own incapacity to do this and, be, and has always harbored in the necessity of its own critique. And so, like, right. if there's a way out of it, it's not for an individual or a human or the human to get out of metaphysics. It's for metaphysics right. to become something else. Right. That's right.
1: right. Well, it would like, be in it. Get, yeah
0: the like, metaphysics has to become unrecognizable to itself it's not like it can't be that yeah. some people are in it and some people are out of it
2: it would be an epochal shift not like the intentions yeah. of one individual to be like I have driven yeah. past metaphysics it right. would be a complete shift a transmutation in our mode of relating yeah. which is like yeah. what Nietzsche was after and right. this is like right. Derrida's point here that we are that this is a, an historical necessity it reminds me A little bit of Hegel's concrete universality, which I think touches on what you both were just saying, which is that you are universally enthralled to contingent circumstances, right? right? So that contingency holds weight and sediments over years, and that's how we get metaphysics and ethnocentrism. So of course you can imagine other ways of being, but the the historical fact is that we're all, at least in the West, sort of caught up.
1: Right, and, yeah. but that's what I don't like about contingency. I think is it. It's it's this kind of leveling thing. Like it treats it's it's like a, such a homogenizing concept. And I think that's what I'm going after. Is like, contingency. Like not all contingency is equal. Right. Like it would be one way of saying it. Like right. to call to to insist upon the contingency of something is to say that everything is is available tends to be that everything is available depending on the circumstances and it's like no that's the point not everything is available right like yeah. um and they're still contingent and and i i would grant that like it's still everything is available
0: but but like but the condition only, theoretically. Under which only th- well uh, yeah but like but also practically as well it's just that the possibility that, that the sorts of The conditions that would, you know, have to lie in just the right way for some things to happen would be astronomically unlikely. I mean, they do happen and they can happen just very rarely
1: but let's just take nietzsche's example of christianity right like so christianity is a formation that has tends to be about resentment right like that that's that's just the sort of way the reactive forces that mm-hmm. that you know is it imaginable to think of, i mean is it imaginable to think of religion of affirmation i think nietzsche's going to say no it's not imaginable to think of religion of affirmation it's not imaginable for active force Itself, you know, it's not becoming reactive. Right. Like, it just, it can't do that. It's, it's not available for that. Is it hypothetically available in some hyper-futuristic thing with it? Of course. Like, who knows? Where uh, you'd have to, uh, but it's all of those, not those terms will have,
0: to, will have to have shifted. Will right? have to have shifted. like the same thing with, like, right. a square circle. I can't imagine a square circle, but, you know, I mean, I suppose within an entirely different apparatus that... Different geometry. Yeah, different mm. geometry. Then you know that becomes not so. Like once we have
1: five, six, seven dimensions, you know, yeah. who
0: knows, right? Like then maybe, maybe um, we find that circles are essentially related to, to triangles. I don't know.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but only but in the sixth a, dimension. That's the issue for me. I think with conti- I mean, even though well, in many yeah. ways I'm like I'm totally in favor of the term. It's just that it it feels like because it's negotiating its relationship to universality. I feel like yeah. you know. Yeah. The the insistence on that particular dyad, I want to I just kind of want to say like contingency isn't really <laughs> I mean I just think, I keep coming back to the phrasing and I think it's in what is philosophy where Deleuze is like contingency is only contingent to itself and that actually makes sense to me, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's not contingent upon something. It's right. contingent upon contingency. Right. You know, yeah. and I'm like, okay, I got that because that gives me a meatier sense. Of continuous, as opposed to saying, "Hey, stuff's contingent." It's like not really. I, mean, I it's, mean,
2: it's the way that I've been using it. I feel like is kind of in line with Derrida's argument, where it's sort of yeah. more of a it's sort it's it's a cultural or you know historical argument where it's it's about inherited presuppositions, right? So, like, if, if you're contingently affected by a series of, of presuppositions and you're not, you know, critically reflective upon that then you can uh, sort of lean in the Levi-Strauss direction, or you can, you know, aspire to an empirical study of, of human being, right? Because you think you've yeah. gotten outside That's of right. this circle. So contingency actually functions as a warning, in that case, of our being in debt to a series of right. very specific relations, Right. So it's not about just wide open. Anything can happen. Right. It's about like you are directly affected by a a constellation of concepts and ideals and motives that you're not necessarily or ever aware of, you know.
1: But I mean, think of the claim like this necessity is irreducible. It is not a historical contingency. It's not. Like it's not histor—I mean, he's not even saying it's a subjective contingency, which is obvious. It's not just Levi Strauss an individual, but it's like it's not even a historical contingency. It's not like because of the era in which he lived, uh, he's he's making the choice that he's making.
0: Well, I mean, imagine the best way of trying to contradict that and say like, okay, well, once Western metaphysics is installed, then it's a necessity. But Western metaphysics didn't have to be installed but then you right. realize or, or maybe it maybe it
1: didn't get installed would be the next level of the claim like you know that yeah. there isn't a western metaphysics well mm-hmm. i mean
0: that, so you, that that that's another thing i mean, like, I, I want to get back to that, okay. in just a Set second. that side sorry okay uh, uh, just just because <laughs> that's that's a beef i have with both ethnology and ethnocentrism but um but to, to go back to this for a second um, you would have to imagine, like, okay, what would it be to imagine a history without Western metaphysics? Right. Like hist- uh, in terms of in terms. But you couldn't the, even like consider that word like, history Yeah, like makes, yeah historia like, has right. is, is very indebted to a metaphysical. It makes
1: no sense without. Yeah, what would know, it even like?
0: Phusis. Yeah. What it? Yeah. Like the like prehistory is distinctly not history. Right. And, so yeah, so that would like even that way would fail. Like that's that's why the, the necessity is insofar as there is a history, right. that history right. is necessitated to it's critique itself. Yes, right. right. The universalizing force of history is, nece- is is necessarily takes itself up and critiques itself.
2: Well, and the, and the reason also that this extends beyond Levi Strauss and ethnography is just that you're going to be caught up in something. So even if it weren't Western metaphysics, which it happens to be, you would still have inherited presuppositions somehow or another, right? So like you're going to be caught up in the game and you're going to be – you're going to have some sort of floating unconscious that's that's motivating your decisions regardless of the historical context, right? So like you can generalize that argument away from ethnography, I think, but you you almost don't have to because – The way that Derrida's setting it up, ethnocentrism is universalizing in itself. Thinking with, thinking, thinking with.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're gonna feast on this one. Conceptuality is something other than itself. There's been a change in the image of thought. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. The
2: internal structure of becoming. As soon as an utterance slips from the mouth, it's divorced from the subject.